Six weeks with Satan. We are on the fifth week. We've got one more next week. Wrap up before we go into Easter. Today, let me start with a legend. The legend is that the devil once decided to go out of business. And just for you who take me very all too literally, that's just a legend. So don't don't be fooled. He's not out of business. But the story goes that the devil decided to go out of business and he offered to sell all the tools of his trade. They were attractively displayed, trickery, hatred, jealousy, deceit, malice, sensuality, and many other evil tools that he used in his day, each marked with a price. But in the center was a wedge-shaped, much-worn tool, priced higher than all the others. When asked, what is that? Satan replied, saying, that is the tool of discouragement. And when asked, but why is it so costly, he replied, because it can do my evil work better than all my other tools. With it, I can make the lives of many folk of no value. I can make them just lie down and give up and thus become useless. And they don't even know I'm the one who uses it. Discouragement. We've talked about the schemes of Satan to this point being that he is, first and foremost, he's a liar. And he would seek, number one, to deceive us day in and day out. He is a liar and he seeks to get us off track in error. He will deceive us. Number two, we talked about the fact that he will, if he cannot get us off track, he will try and disqualify or discredit us by the deeds of our life. He will try and cause us to fall flat on our face in sin and immorality so that our lives become a tabloid. We are discredited in the eyes of this world. Our story sounds great, but it's unbelievable because it's not accurate to our life. He will discredit us. Number three, we talked about how if he can't do either of those, he might just try and distract us. If we guard from error, if we guard from being discredited in our life, he might just try and get us materialistic. He might try and get us focused not on the kingdom items, but on something else, anything else that keeps us from doing what God has intended us to do with the rest of our Christian lives. He will distract us. If that doesn't work, he always loves to wedge his way into the church and find how to divide us. Is that right? Every chance he gets, he looks to divide us and cause us to be one against the other instead of being for one another. He would have us be one against another and therefore disqualify us once again in the eyes of the world. We're nothing more than a sham. A great story, but it doesn't add up. If we can't get along in here, he's won. He's divided us. And our story is unbelievable once again. Today we talk about what I'm giving you as the fifth scheme of the devil and its discouragement. C.S. Lewis said, If Satan's arsenal of weapons were restricted to a single one, it would be, in my estimation, discouragement. Uh, C.S. Lewis is known for the Chronicles of Narnia, recently made into a movie. He and a guy named Tolkien, you remember? Great, great storytellers. Lewis, Lewis, who made this quote in one of his uh, books, a collection of letters that he called the Screw Tape Letters. It's an interesting read. If you want, if you want more on this topic that we just we're just spending six weeks on, grab C.S. Lewis, the Screw Tape Letters. Here, here's the gist of the Screw Tape Letters. It's letters from one demon to another, one senior demon to an understudy demon, and the senior demon whose name is Screw Tape is writing letters to the understudy demon whose name is, this is a great name, Wormwood. 
teaching him how to get into the Christian's life who Lewis would call the patient in the letters. We're the patient. We're the client to Wormwood. And throughout the letter, Lewis makes it apparent how he will deceive us, discredit us, distract us, and divide us. But Lewis would argue that his, his greatest weapon would be to discourage us. And Screwtape will train Wormwood in the art of discouraging the patience of the enemy, he calls him. That would be the Lord. Well, discouragement, you could use the word despondency, despair, and even depression. Major problems in our world, right? Major problems. I heard recently that it is an $8 million problem in the workplace. That those things, discouragement, despondency, despair, and depression leading to being out of work, it's an $8 million problem in the workforce. We miss work day in and day out because of one of those items. I could spend the entire morning looking at the causes of our discouragement, but I don't need to because you know them all too well, just as I do. I mean, you could list them off. If we just stopped for a moment and and had a show of hands of who knows discouragement in this life, we could all list off where we find discouragement. It's no surprise that discouragement creeps into the Christian's life. If it helps you any, discouragement is one of the main occupational hazards of professional ministry. That means me. Every time I turn around, Satan would have me discouraged by one thing or another attached to my ministry. I would say, as I look back on my time in professional ministry, that discouragement probably is the most reoccurring theme as Satan whispers his lies to me. Don't you just want to give up? Don't you just know that what you're doing is worthless? Don't you just know that that guy's out there not not hearing a single word that you're saying right here, right now? He's just hearing the Charlie Brown teacher, wondering how soon he's going to be able to get to lunch and not miss the SEC championship basketball game, which I'm well aware of starts at 1 o'clock. By God's grace, I tripped up on an essay done by a guy named Charles Spurgeon. You ever heard of a guy named Charles Spurgeon? Spurgeon dealt with uh, discouragement all the way to the point of depression. And he wrote to his understudies, to his students, an essay, a sermon, a teaching, if you will. I tripped up on it. I can't tell you how I came across it, but the title of it made me smile. It was called The Fainting Fits of the Pastor. And I said, that. that, that. I have fits of fainting in my spirit. That's me. It brought me great encouragement to know that Spurgeon and many others, many other giants of the faith have met their own moments of discouragement. I don't mind to tell you that it's, um, it was probably one of the darkest weeks of my life, a week that my wife knew uh, a couple years ago me to have been sick and resigned to our bonus room for a number of days, probably almost a week, where I couldn't explain to you what was wrong. It felt like the flu to start, and then uh, I became not emotional, but emotionless. I didn't care about a thing. I couldn't motivate myself to a thing. I couldn't sleep, and I loved to sleep. But I would just sit up all night. Um, I look back on that time, and it was clear to me, and I don't mean to, um, I don't mean to make light of clinical depression, when I say that it was clear to me that I felt like God gave me just a, a one-week 
crash course in what it means to be truly depressed. I felt like I had a dose of it so that I might know what it is, so that I might not quickly discredit it in the hearts of uh, the flock. I felt like uh, maybe you've read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. You read that? Great classic. Another allegory of the Christian life. I felt like the main character. You'll remember the scene when uh, the Christian approaches what he calls, what Bunyan calls Doubting Castle. And he's tired and he's weak and he just falls asleep on the grounds. He doesn't even make it to the castle. But the owner of the castle, who has the name Giant Despair, comes and he says, Hey, if you're going to camp out here, come on into my house. Invites him into the castle. And after a week, he wakes up and he realizes he's been in a dungeon and he doesn't know how to get out. He can't lift himself out of what is the allegory of despair, discouragement. And he gets to the point where he says the only way out of this is death. By the way, we'll get to that next week. Um, have, you ever, have you ever been in a pit like that? Anybody? That might represent the worst of discouragement, but Satan always seems to start small, doesn't he? He's sly like that. He's looking for seemingly insignificant ways to get us to, as Lewis said wisely, just to get us to lay down and give up. And before we know it, we feel like we're in that dungeon of giant despair. One of my favorite preachers of old, Warren Wearsby, He said that the remedy for discouragement is the Word of God. Amen? When you feed your heart and mind with its truth, you regain your perspective and find renewed strength. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Where can we go in Scripture for a word of, not discouragement, but encouragement? Where would you go? Uh, I like the Psalms. For one, because the writers are so honest, aren't they? If they're up, they're up, and they let you know they're up. If they're down, they're down, and they don't mind hiding the fact that they are down. And you can read the Psalms and say, I I know exactly what that guy's talking about. And they don't pull any punches. Thanks be to God that he left some of those Psalms in there. Amen? Psalm 42 and 43, I'm going to read it to you. Don't worry about turning. We're not even going to have it on the screen this morning because I just want you to listen. And I want you to see if you can find moments in your own life moments of discouragement, moments of inner turmoil in these psalms. Most scholars believe that these two psalms, 42 and 43, are probably just one complete thought, and so I'm going to read them as such. But as I begin, let me just go ahead and give you a preview of of this play that's going to break out. You're going to find it in three acts. It's a soliloquy of inner turmoil by the writer, by the author. And in these three acts of his life, you're going to see three reoccurring themes. Number one, you're going to see that he is going to very openly and honestly express his deep inner turmoil. And you should find your own self right there. Number two, you're going to, you're going to find that he, he almost awakens himself with like this, this splash of cold perspective to the fact that that's not where he should be in his spirit. And to pull himself out of there, you're going to see that he has applied a healthy dose of hope. In his Savior. Listen. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, 
while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving and a multitude keeping festival. Why? Why are you despair, O my soul? Why are you literally cast down or sunk in my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. He starts once again. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. And his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. While they say to me all day long, once again, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Act 3. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill. Into your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre, I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why? Why are you sunk down, cast down? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed so within me? Hope in God. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. Taken all together. We get three lessons on how to handle discouragement from these psalms. Lessons that the writer himself had to learn, and he learns as he shares with us, and thus I think we can learn as well. I'm going to give you three lessons to defeat discouragement. Here's number one. If we hope to defeat Satan's scheme of discouragement in our life, we need to stop, to, stop looking to ourselves and look to God. Stop looking to ourselves and look to God. You know, in these, in these two short psalms, you find over 50 personal pronouns. I, me, my. The writer is self-focused. Life hadn't worked out the way he had hoped. Disappointment had given way to deep discouragement. Did you notice also that he had no sympathizers or encouragers? Only mockers? Where is your God? Where is your God, by the way? That was of no help to him, was it? More than that, his questions, and they were many, his questions went unanswered, didn't they? When can I come? When can I stand before God? Why am I discouraged? Why so sad? Why have you tossed me aside? Why must I wander around in darkness? Ten times the psalmist asks, why, why, why? And yet we find no record that God ever gave him an answer. It's easy to see that self, the I, me, and the my, were at the heart of his complaints. Have you ever been there? 
He wants his plans to be fulfilled. He wants his feelings to be improved, lifted. He wants his questions answered. He's so busy looking at himself that he forgets to look at God. You ever been there? Well, there are times when we need to examine our heart. You've got to know that it's dangerous to look at ourselves too deeply. One evidence of this selfish pride, of proud selfishness, is that we see ourselves no matter where we look. If you think back to his words, he saw a deer drinking at the brook. He didn't think of God's provision. He was reminded of his own yearnings, his own thirst. He saw the herd. He saw and heard the falling waters of the river and thought only of his own deep desires. Even nature's beauty fails to give peace to our troubled heart. Do you realize that? Unless, unless when we witness it, we think not of ourselves, but we are, we're drawn. We're focused on the God of the creation. When our Lord Jesus, if you think about it, when he looked at nature, what did he see? He saw not his own turmoil. He saw the heavenly father's love and care, didn't he? Jesus said, look at the birds, for the Father cares for the birds. Even the little sparrows that fall. Look at the flowers. The world of nature was a window through which Jesus saw his heavenly Father. The most important thing about any difficult experience, one theologian said, is not that we get out of it, but that we find something to get out of it. If we are truly thirsting after God, and that's a question we must each ask ourselves, if we're truly thirsting after God and not our own selfish desires, then even the disappointments, even the discouragements that could tear us down will actually build us up. Life will not be a mirror in which we see only ourselves, but it can be a window through which we see the power of our God. Which which is life for you? Is life that mirror which just reflects Self, that you just see the I, the me, and the my, problems, issues, circumstances, scenarios of life. That mirror does us very little good. Unless in that mirror we see God redeeming the I, the me, and the my. If instead we could see through our circumstances as a window and to our God, then we would be helped. How do we defeat discouragement? We've got to... Take the focus off of us and put it on God. Self-pity is one of the most dangerous attitudes you and I can ever cultivate. It poisons, it poisons our life. Nothing looks right when we are in the midst of self-pity. You've all known the, the person, and maybe there's been times in your life when you've been the person that it's just about the I, the me, and the my. And you can't see the God through the circumstances. All you can see is how life is affecting you. There's no hope there. Number two, second way to defeat discouragement. Stop looking at the past. And I would add even the present and look to the future. You know, throughout each of these soliloquies, the writer had to turn his focus off of himself, but also off of the circumstances of the past that that put him right where he is in his discouragement. And he had to take his heart and mind and he had to he had to awaken himself with that 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 cold splash of water of reality that says, whoa, 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 
why, why is my soul like this? It ought not be this way. There was something in him that was always reminded about the power of his God. That there is not just a past and a present that would be discouraging, but there's a great hope of a future. And so three times he has to remind himself. He has to wake himself up. He has to say, wait a second. Why, why am I letting this have control over me? That's, that's not who I am. And he moves on to a future hope. I will, I will hope in my God. Not only do you have to take your, your eyes off of yourself, but we have to take our eyes off of the past. There's a right way and a wrong way to use the past, isn't there? I mean, Scripture would have us to remember our chains. Moses was encouraging to Israel to remember the bondage in Egypt. Lest they forget how God had delivered them, the Passover was an annual reminder of what God had done for them. But when we see God in our past, the memory is always a blessing. But we have to find God in our past. When we see ourselves, when we start contrasting our circumstances, when we start evaluating the us in the past, then our memories will only bring discouragement all day. And Satan wants to use the past to drag us down and defeat us. That's not God's intent in reminding us of where we've been. God's intent of reminding us of where we've been is so that it culminates in where he has brought us from and what he has brought us to. God's intent of having us remember the past is always so that we have hope and peace and rest in who he is and what he's done for us, what he's brought us out of. Satan would have us linger in the past. Satan would have us Rest in that dungeon of great despair, wouldn't he? And fall down and go to sleep right there, never to awake again. That's, that's the scheme of the devil. To defeat discouragement, we have to take our eyes not only off self, but off the past. Put it in the future. The end of each section of each of these triads, the author says, Put your hope as if to declare it to himself, as if to teach himself a lesson, almost as if to remind himself of what he knows deep within. Put your trust, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That's why the Apostle Paul in Philippians would say, forgetting those things which are behind. We're not real good at forgetting those things which are behind us, are we? And we have one who would like to drag each one of those old things up daily, wouldn't he? Throw them in our face and remind us daily and try and convince us daily that that's who we are. When God is saying, no, no, this is who you are. You are in Christ now. Forget those things which are behind. Reach forth unto the things which are before. Paul says, I press towards the mark for the high calling of God which is in Christ Jesus. Four times in this psalm, the writer says that he is sunk down, cast down. But the truth is, that need, not be, that need not be the truth of his countenance. And he reminds himself each time, put your hope in God. Put your hope in what is to come, not just what has happened and not even just what is. Our hope is not in the past, it's not even in the present. Our hope comes in the future. How do we defeat discouragement? Take our eyes off of ourselves, put them on God. Take our eyes off of the past and even the present circumstances and remember the hope of the future that is promised to us. Let me give you one more. To defeat discouragement, we need to stop looking for reasons or answers. 
and look to the promises of God instead. You know, I would say feel free, church, feel free to pour your heart out to God. He can handle it. Feel free to ask God all the questions you want, even the difficult ones, the why questions. If you have kids, you know how difficult the why questions can be, right? Well, why? I have no idea. It just is, right? That's what you want to say sometimes. Imagine some of the questions we ask of our Heavenly Father, the why questions. And he, on his infinite throne, is saying, now how am I going to explain this to the little guy down there? And very often, in his sovereignty, he chooses not to. Maybe right now, and maybe until we reach eternity. Well, you know what the, the, the truth is? That our hope lies not in the answers and not in the reasons to the circumstances that bring our discouragement. You know, if I'm really honest with myself, if I got all the answers to the things that have caused me to be discouraged in my days, those things would really not bring me much hope. What brings me hope are the promises beyond all the circumstances, the promises, the trust I can put in my God, my eternal Savior, beyond all of the answers that He might give me. It's not the reason, it's not the answer, it's the promise we must cling to. At least 13 questions in these Psalms. Why? 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 Not one answer. Not one specifically. An explanation, although we uh, cry out for them from time to time. An explanation may satisfy our curiosity, but only a promise can heal the hurt of our heart and give strength to our will. The psalmist looked around at nature and saw only himself. Why? Because he was looking for explanations, reasons, rationale. In his pride and self-pity, he was demanding that God give reasons for what God was doing. Have you ever been there? God, I want to know why this is going on. You need only look at the circumstances if it's not of your life, but get on Facebook and look at some of the sad circumstances of other people's lives. See the children that are being prayed for, and you've got to say, why God? Why God? At the end of the day, our hope is not in the answers not in the reasons or hope or in the promises of God. Had the psalmist looked at nature and watched for assurances of God's promises, he would have found healing for his aching heart. And so if we were to ask the same question that the writer asks, why are you cast down, O my soul, in any of our moments of discouragement? Why are we being sunk in? Why are we letting it get us? What's happening? The answer would have to be that we've either set our eyes on ourselves, we've set our eyes on the past or the present circumstances, or we've fixed our hopes on answers and reasons instead of the promises of God. Why don't you go ahead and pray with me? And I'll close with this. Satan has a, a number of schemes. And uh, although our series will just look at six, 
you understand that he takes those six and he combines them and he piles one on top of another. And you understand as well that there are many ways to address the scheme of discouragement. You've got your own reasons for why discouragement may creep into life. And you've experienced in your own ways how Satan piles discouragement on top of discouragement, question upon question. He would have you to sink with inside yourself and focus on the I, the me, and the my, wouldn't he? He would have you focus on your circumstances, what has brought you to the place you're at, why you're in the place you're at. He would have you searching for answers that really will not satisfy you, reasons to the situation. And he would have you bogged down in looking for those answers when they'll bring no real hope. If anyone had reason to be discouraged, it was Jesus himself. Think with me now. Through his baptism of suffering on the cross, the devil was constantly opposing him, wasn't he? And even his own followers deserted him, didn't they? At Calvary, his enemies taunted him. In the same way, the psalmist was taunted. As they said, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he wants him. Where is your God? But Jesus was not thinking of himself, was he? The example of Christ was that he was thinking of the Father's will. He was thinking of the needs of the sinful world. Jesus was not looking back. Scripture says he was anticipating the joy that was set before him through the hardship of the cross, even still. Jesus didn't ask for explanations. He rested on the promises of the Father. And in the end, as we will celebrate here in just a couple weeks, He was triumphant. And He's made a way of hope for us. Father God, we put our hope in You. And um, there's so much more to be said as to how Satan would discourage us. And so really, Lord, this is just a start for us. Maybe it's just a wake-up call. For the believer to realize that discouragement is not of you, it's, it's of the adversary. You would not have us sunk down in the I, the me, and the my. You would not have us in the prison of self-pity. Father, you would not have us focusing on the past, but looking towards the hope that you have secured all the way into eternity. Dear Lord, give us, give us the ability to think bigger than just answers and reasons. Remind us that as Christians we rest in promises that go far beyond our, our current temporal circumstances. Lord, we put our hope in you. We have a hope. We have a future. We have a Savior. And Lord, as I, as I thought about this sermon this week, I, 
I tried to imagine the, the worst things that could come to us. And for whatever reason, Lord, the worst thing that I could imagine as a parent, as a father myself, would be the loss of a child. And there are some in this congregation who have even experienced that. I can't imagine, I can't imagine the depth of loss that one feels having given birth to a child, watched them grow, and then, and then seeing them taken. Lord, I, I really can't think of anything worse. Discouragement comes in many forms and fashions. It comes in small ways daily and it comes in giant ways like that of the loss of a loved one. Whatever the case may be, for those hearts that are here today, Lord, would you bring hope? And Lord, uh, these, these three lessons on how to defeat and win against discouragement, Lord, they, they even, even to me, the preacher, they seem, as Paul may have communicated, like foolishness as I preach them, Lord. They just seem so simple. And maybe, Lord, to some, even this morning, they're thinking that, that maybe they're too simple. Maybe they're too trite. But Lord, give us, give us the depth in our spirit. And if we are in the moment of discouragement, Father, teach us the truth. In looking not inside, not backward, and not all around for answers, but looking straight to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Lord, we know that our hope is that we'll spend eternity with you. And somehow, some way, Lord, that trumps anything that might happen in this short piece, this prelude to the eternal story of our life. So, Lord, give us a focus that is eternal. We pray in Jesus' name, who is our cornerstone. Amen.